Welcome back to the Growth Innovators Podcast. During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, hospitalizations in the United States hit a record 125,000 people. And while the pandemic strained hospital systems, doctors, and essential workers in unimaginable ways, it proved to plant the seeds for an accelerated industry shift. In this conversation, advisory partner John Sfiocla speaks with Dr. Stephen Kahane, former president at Athena Health, to discuss the healthcare sector's valuable lessons learned from the pandemic and how technology has played a vital role in reshaping the industry on the other side. It's a fascinating conversation. You'll get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to John and Stephen. Welcome, everybody. This is John Sfiocla, and welcome to our latest Growth Innovator Series. And I'm pleased today to have a dear friend of mine, Steve Kahan, who I'll introduce in a minute. But what we're going to deal with here is we're going to try to understand what the future healthcare is in a post-COVID world. And uh, the central thing that's happened with COVID in healthcare, as Steve will get into, is it is, of course, had a horrible human toll, and, and that human toll continues especially in places like uh, Brazil and India. At the same time, a side effect of this has been to accelerate the development of new cures, but also new behaviors and the creation of more digital use in healthcare, more remote, more distributed care. And we're going to get into all of that and and see if that we can't give some notion of where that's going to go. Let me give you a little bit of background in terms of my background. For those of you who don't know, uh, I'm a partner at Manifold. We are a venture holding company. And our love and our passion really is growth, all kinds of growth, helping organizations create new things, uh, new products, new services, as well as growing their existing businesses. Steve is an old and dear friend. He actually used to be my across-the-street neighbor when I was living in Newton, Mass. And he and I both have five children, so there's a lot of overlap in similar ages, actually. But I served on a board with Steve at a, a company called Amicus. And as you get to know Steve a little bit today, he's probably the most humble, but also the most knowledgeable person I know at the intersection of technology and healthcare. So to give you an idea, he's, a MD, PhD, he's an MD and a master's in computer science. He, back in the late 80s, was using artificial intelligence to try to transform uh, clinical care, has been CEO at other companies, VitalWorks, which was acquired by Cerner, and InfoCure, which is acquired, I mean, by Datamedic, which was acquired by InfoCure. And then he was also president of Athena Health, which is a very, very successful startup, looked at medical records. And Steve is now an operating partner at a a private equity firm. And so Steve really has more on-the-ground experience, both as a physician and as a technologist and entrepreneur of anybody I know. And he'll come across as very humble but you really need to listen to what he has to say because he's brilliant and practical, that rare combination, and not arrogant. So there you go. Let me give you an idea of where this sits in terms of our agenda. We're going to talk about what COVID's done on healthcare, this notion of telehealth, as well as virtual care delivery, how it's gone up and down and what its implications are. Steve's very passionate, and he and I have been talking a lot about this notion of data liquidity. Right now, it's in the interest of many people to keep data in their silos. And how does that really help the end patient and where might that go over time? And then this movement of fee for value and those payment models have been talked about a lot, but really coming to life. And then we're going to go into our next speaker, uh, who's Jamie Yoder, another friend. Just two seconds on Manifold here. We've got three hunks of the business. We've got a consulting firm, a studio where we build stuff, and we also have a venture arm because we think that in order to deliver growth today, you really need all three of those things as we work with our clients and our investors to deal with the transformation that's happening all over the world. And what's driving this transformation is, oh, I'm sorry, the kinds of folks we work with, large companies and small, basically think of it as a barbell, small companies helping to, hoping to scale and large companies hoping to grow. And then the relationship between those two, that's really our sweet spot. In terms of what's driving this, this notion of computability of reality, the I know it sounds like an abstract thing, but I think it's an important kind of North Star. What's happening is more and more of the world is getting digitized, more and more of the world is getting understood. Those interplay with each other, and that makes the life computable. So we'll talk a little bit about this notion of, for example, a self-driving car created a computable environment that the car could drive through. And that's happening more and more in healthcare and the parts that are computable. If I can compute something and you can't, I will win. And that's what, that, that basic background idea we'll talk about. Let me go through some of this in terms of some of the impacts of COVID, which have been just unbelievable when you look at what's been happening. The primary caregivers, the hospitals and healthcare systems, 
lost over 202, almost $203 billion in revenue. And this is due to many things very much around people taking elective surgeries and moving them out or people delaying critical care. And so that ability uh, to deliver and many, some healthcare systems were more oriented toward that and so forth and made, made life much more difficult for them. So when you see where that come from, you see it in the next thing, which is really just a decrease in admissions. Yeah, listen, the impact of COVID on a whole bunch of things in healthcare was, you know, nothing short of dr- unbelievably dramatic. I think in terms of volumes, not only did the volumes shift to non, uh, I'm sorry, to COVID-related care delivery, pushing out elective surgery, elective things. And again, you got to realize some hospitals ran with a lot of empty beds for a long time, just not being able to bring in people who probably should have had some things done for them, but couldn't because of the risks of them getting infected. I think the other thing that happened was a dramatic drop in ambulatory care visits, right? So about 50%, there are about 800, 850,000 practicing physicians in the United States. About half of those are employed by hospitals, half are independent practitioners. You know, the independent practitioners really had a tough time. They were not necessarily equipped to handle a situation where they couldn't see patients. And so that was another thing that didn't get as much press, but it really put at risk an important part of our healthcare infrastructure, these independent docs, who, by the way, who tend to be, with all due respect to the hospital-centric health systems that we have around the country, very important set of care providers of ours, a very important part of our infrastructure for care delivery. Those independent doctors tend to be a little more productive than the ones that are employed by hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of care is delivered that way and, and they couldn't deliver care the way they used to. That did help accelerate dramatically what many of us felt was going to eventually happen anyway, and that is the adoption of alternative care delivery models, technology to support telehealth and, and alter- alternative sites of care delivery. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah. I'll mention one other thing here, which is, and and listen, I got asked this question last week. I, I gave a, a talk. I was a fireside chat at Harvard, at Harvard Medical School. And I was asked the question, if you're going to go into the business of healthcare uh, and you have interest in being involved in the technology revolution, evolution, revolution that's going on in healthcare, what's more important to be really, really good at technology and know what's possible or really, really understand what drives the business of healthcare and care delivery? And that is a tough question. I unfortunately think that healthcare is complex enough with all the constituencies involved in care delivery that you really have to you have to make sure you've got both bases covered. I'm sure that's true in most most arenas, but I think healthcare tends to have a few more sort of outside observers. Or I had one person tell me that the number one spectator sport in America isn't football or baseball; it's actually healthcare. All these different constituencies <laughs> watching the patient and the right. provider, you know, do their dance. But we'll get into that a little bit later. But what happened during COVID impacted certain folks a lot more than others, somewhat related to how they get compensated for the care they deliver and the folks they're responsible for. But we'll get into that a little bit more later. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, you know, notion of the, you and I were talking about, you know, the level of investment, just the amount of money in general being put to work. I remember before I retired from PricewaterhouseCoopers PwC, they have a wealth forecast and they were forecasting an increase in global wealth available for investment from 60 trillion to over 100 trillion. And I think we're well above that now, given the growth in the economy and so forth. So anyway, could you speak to this a bit? Yeah, well, I think the the stats tell a lot of the story. I think Q1 of 2021 was another record setting quarter for investments in digital health companies. Listen, I think I was just talking to John actually earlier today about that. That's a wonderful thing in many ways. If you're a seller today, you're in great shape. If you're a buyer, it's pretty tricky because there are a lot of bidders for good businesses. And the multiples, both public and private, are as high as they've ever been, uh, higher than they've ever been, excuse me, and pretty dramatically so. Again, I was with Athena Health for about eight years. We usually led the pack in terms of market multiples. 
whether it was a multiple of revenue or EBITDA, we were usually right up there near the top of the chart because we were a fast grower. We had pretty nice gross margins and people believed we had the opportunity to expand gross margins over time. The mult- when I say we were at the top, you know, we were trading at five, six, maybe seven times revenue mm-hmm. at times. Now there are numerous healthcare IT companies that are trading over 10 times revenue, some even higher than that. So it's mm-hmm. record setting levels of valuation. That's sort of the good news for sellers, bad news for buyers, but it's great for innovation. There's a lot of money coming in supporting mm-hmm. entrepreneurs and innovators, and we need that in healthcare. There's no question about it. Yeah, I wish we could do a do-over on Amicus. You know, we get better multiple. Oh, we have the- and Datamatic, too. We, <laughs> we, we absolutely sold too early on all of them. But It's funny. Yeah. Well, the Livongo deal uh, that just went down with, you know, Glenn Tolman as CEO founder, I forget. Do you remember the stats on that? Because that was a huge number they exited for. Yeah. It Again, way over 10 times revenue. I want to say yeah. 17, maybe more than that. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but yes, that was that was through the roof. Sorry? I was just going to say for the audience that, that it was the center of that business was a, a diabetes management company, but then was into disease management, selling often to the employer as a system to manage costs and quality. And just let, let's let's focus on that one for a little bit. It was bought by a company called Teladoc, which is primarily a, a telehealth company. So it facilitates providers and others being able to, really providers being able to deliver care via telehealth and a lot of different potential, a lot of different use cases for that. And certainly that gets at convenience uh, for consumers. And one of the things, again, that I think sort of shook my world when I first learned this is that, you know, consumers value convenience almost ahead of what they're able to do in their assessment of quality and cost. So convenience mm-hmm. really rules. There are numerous studies that, that shows that. So I think once folks get over the hump of this is just different and the technology works pretty well and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think there'll be, you know, dramatic, you know, the, the adoption of this technology will continue at a good pace. That being said, a lot of folks don't realize uh, that, while there was a huge uptick in the use of those technologies during COVID, a mm-hmm. lot of it has, re- I'm going to use the word, regressed back towards where it was before. It hasn't gone all the way back, but it's, it's gone back uh, in a pretty dramatic way, although certain areas it's, it's kept up the pace. So behavioral health continues to be an area that was helped a lot in terms of facilitating or driving adoption of telehealth. And that has maintained its, you know, its usefulness. But some other areas where it's a little clunkier, you know, have, have regressed back. So still a lot of work. Fascinating. You know, it, <laughs> it was funny. I had an awful thought when you said about convenience is better and more important than quality. So should I be worried that the most responsive doctors are really lousy? Because <laughs> that's that'd be a good strategy. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're really a terrible physician. Just make sure you get back to the clients really fast. That's but, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that does take some careful. Right, look, assess, assessing quality in healthcare. To your model, by the way, about computability, right? Mm-hmm. So many many years ago, when I first got turned on to the idea of trying to use information management technology to help with care delivery, yeah. you know, what was computable was pretty limited. There was still a lot of medical records on paper. I mean, I hate to admit that. It just shines a light on how old I am. But, you know, there was a lot on paper. And even the stuff that was in the computer wasn't easily accessible. Mm -hmm. There have been a lot of things over the last 10, 12 years that have helped drive that. The government spent about $35, $40 billion doing what was called uh, meaningful use. Uh, Part of the ACA was a drive to get providers to use electronic medical records. I think the government did a pretty good job with that, but they did screw up in a couple areas and they admit it. The lack of adequate attention to interoperability has really hurt us. So the ability to share data across now these silos of at least it's digitized data, but it is in silos. The ability to share that data has been remains a hurdle, Mm -hmm. uh, an important area for us going forward. But we do have much more computable data now. And uh, well, again, I'm sure we're going to get into that in more detail in a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. So here we are in terms of the, the impact of COVID and, you know, first community spread and CARES Act and so forth. 
You want to take us through some of the highlights of this, Steve? Yeah, I th- and I, I probably jumped ahead when I said, look, as COVID hit, the adoption of telehealth skyrocketed. There's one major vendor in this space who actually handles about 15% of all ambulatory care visits in the U.S. And the data from that vendor, you know, had in-person visit volumes dropping, you know, I think it was 80%, but but the, the volume of televisits skyrocketed to make, you know, almost, almost completely the delta in visit volume. So telehealth you know, jumped in and and covered our butts pretty nicely. But a lot of that is, again, regressed back, Mm -hmm. except in certain specialty areas. And it hasn't gone all the way back. There's still more use of telehealth today than there there was a year ago, you know, by a significant amount, but nowhere near what I think people think. And Mm -hmm. I think this gets at, like, you know, if you're thinking about where are the opportunities in healthcare, I, I think this shines a light on the fact that you have to think about Subsegments of the healthcare market, healthcare services market, how they function today, how they're compensated today, what the workflow is like, and what layering telehealth capabilities on top of it can do. Just as an example, I'm executive chair at a company called Groups Recover Together. It's the largest and fastest growing ambulatory care opiate use disorder treatment uh, mm-hmm. company in the space, about 80 centers in about 15 states, combines medication-assisted treatment with group therapy. Well, about the last thing you want, your the last name you want for your company when COVID hits is groups, because <laughs> groups right. get together. Yeah. Uh, but, but that company already supported telehealth to some extent, but it pivoted, I think, on March 22nd, 2020, to doing, instead of 700 group therapy sessions per week in person with maybe 10% handled via video to 100% video based. Mm-hmm. Now grown to over 900 a week, all telehealth based. And fortunately, you know, the payers and the government did what they did, needed to do to support, you know, that model of care delivery and patients got the care they needed. But just a, a good example of where technology jumped in and it, that won't ever go back to the way it was. We did a survey at the company of the current membership. 80% of those members don't really want to have to go back to in-person meetings, certainly don't want to have to go back to in-person weekly meetings. And as long as we can confirm that we're delivering high quality care there, which we've been doing, I think that's going to stick. So it's a good example of certain market subsegment in the provider space being very amenable to good use of telehealth. You know, I remember many, many years ago, I was back when I was a professor at Harvard Business School, The we had Bob Johansson come and he's the, I think the founder, but certainly the leader of the Institute for the Future in, in Silicon Valley. And Bob said, had this very interesting model that builds on another model by a guy, I think it's by Tushman anyway, or maybe Bachman. Anyway, it's about group formation. So there's, you know, norming, storming, performing, celebrating or something like that. And and Bob basically said, hey, look, you need a mix of physical and virtual, yeah. right? So when you're doing the, when you're doing the, you know, the norming, you probably want to be physically together or the storming, the performing, you know, if you set your, you know, goals and objectives and so forth. And, and, you know, I always thought that um, it's not that one is going to be a complete substitute for the other, but the balance seems to have changed, certainly in, in certain kinds of therapy. I mean, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, I mean, all my friends who are in that business, by the way, for our audience that doesn't know, Newton, Massachusetts, where, St- where Steve and I used to live, Steve lives in Boston, I live in Chicago, has the highest per capita number of psychologists and psychiatrists of any place in the nation, uh, to which I always think, is that a statement of supply or a statement of demand? Uh, but, and I will tell you, as a general rule, psychiatrists make terrible soccer coaches. It's been my experience. Anyway, great insight. Great insight. Yeah. And you know the guy I'm thinking. You know the guy I'm thinking about. Anyway, yeah, really. yeah. Anyway, but that profession, you know, it seems to be one that where the where the where the move has and and coaches, you know, executive coaches I talk to, things like that, very much, you know, different. So I think it's yeah. interesting you should say that balance is different. And uh, the other thing I think a lot of people don't don't necessarily appreciate is the amount of intelligence which is now going to be layered into this environment. Like there's a, 
a friend of mine who is in charge of the Zoom platform, and he's he's going to be releasing in July in the next level of Zoom integration and the kinds of tools and technologies that are going to be layered in on top of this, whether it's facial recognition, emotional profiling, security analysis, other kinds of data so that when I'm looking at you, Steve, you know, I have an overlay of your background or what's going on or your voice stress or who knows what. Once we make this environment, this interaction environment computable, we can have lots of different dimensions. And I'm sure many of those will be relevant to healthcare. I got to say, uh, there is a, there are several companies doing exactly that sort of monitoring voice and video in, in those kinds of sessions, group therapy and individual therapy. And just looking for ways to detect earlier, you know, issues that we can intervene on. I think the other thing to, to keep in mind here is, uh, to your point about, you know, the right blend of brick and mortar and tele, you know, the, the whole convenience thing, when you think about it, it, it's just, it sort of scratches that itch, right? There are a lot of things I know, you know, I have, as you pointed out, I have five kids, they're all young adults now, they have no patience for the old model of going, you know, trying to schedule by making a phone call, then, you know, going into a waiting room and sitting and waiting. The whole idea of, you know, okay, doctor, the patient will see you now, as opposed to, okay, patient, the doctor will see you now, that's happening already. And, you know, companies like One Medical, a whole bunch of companies that have gone public within the last year that are really trying to do that, I think, strike that right balance of uh, physical and virtual. One Medicals, one Oak Street Health, Alignment Health, you know, Signify Health. There, there are a whole bunch of those companies. And these are actually tech-enabled healthcare services companies, right? Yeah. It's not, I'm not talking about tech-enabled software or tech-enabled software companies or services companies. I'm really talking about healthcare services companies that are coming out from ground zero as a tech-enabled service. Now, if I remember right, Steve, just for, for the sake of our audience here, One Medical, as I understood it, was basically a new kind of physician's practice. And so that, you know, you could see the doctor physically, virtually, nurse care. They go and integrate your healthcare records. They refer you to specialists. Do I remember that correctly? Yes, that's correct. That's right. And the companies, there are a few others, Oak Street Health basically does a similar thing, but for uh, the Medicare population, same with Alignment Health. Signify Health's a little different. Signify Health actually incorporates into its offering home visits and home care delivery, virtual visits as well. And so a lot of really good innovation going on. And I think that whole thread of tech-enabled healthcare services companies is something to keep an eye on yeah, because uh, they have a lot of different levers they can pull to address that convenience issue. Uh, and let's remember, so John, you have a great model for this computability and then the knowledge you can apply to that. I, there's a model in healthcare that I think is very helpful for folks. It's been around for a while. It was augmented maybe five, six years ago in a little, in, in a way I'll describe in a second, but the triple aim in healthcare, the triple aim in healthcare is to deliver high quality care at a fair price with a good consumer experience. That has been the triple aim for a while. The Institute of Medicine came up with that. It's a, a way to think about what's important in healthcare. They've added recently, you know, maybe five, seven years ago, the quadruple aim, they added to that the provider experience. As you know, John, because you and I have talked about this, 70, almost 70% of physicians will not recommend to their kids that they go into medicine. They're just burnt out. They don't feel like they're being treated fairly. There's just a whole bunch of things that used to be true that are no longer true that I think have, dri have driven the need to think about that fourth axis. And I'm not saying that because I'm a doctor, because my kids will point out that I'm not a real doctor anyway. But really, I think that's a useful model to think about those four axes that have to get addressed in almost any healthcare business. Yeah, no, it's, it's so interesting. My friend, Ellen Levy, who runs a thing called Silicon Valley Connect, and she was one of the early strategists at LinkedIn. And she has a point of view, which is fantastic. She said, look, in the industrial age, the customer organized around the supply. So you went to the car dealership or you went to the doctor or you, know, you went to the supermarket. She said, in the digital age, supply organizes around the customer. So 
I mean, to me, the you know emblematic example is you order something from Amazon, you give them permission to, to get access to your car, and they put it in your trunk. I mean, you know, perfect. It sounds like you're saying same thing's happening in healthcare. Let's see. Virtual care delivery. We've talked a bunch about this. Anything else important to... Uh, to highlight in this? Because well, I, I think that last that last thing on the right, you know, so mm-hmm. far, and it looks like the government will continue to support this, you know, I think fair compensation for the providers for delivery of care in this manner should mm-hmm. not just be assumed, right? So I think ma- many in our audience know that healthcare costs the U.S. something like $3.6 trillion a year right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority of that comes from government payments, Medicare mm-hmm. and Medicaid. The next biggest chunk is private insurance, most of which is paid for by employers. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those folks, and then you know, small piece, you know, from directly from the consumer. That's a whole other topic about you know high deductible plans. How much is that moving the needle? But let's not go there yet. You should not just assume that because something is more convenient for consumers, everyone's going to buy in and, and jump on board and make it you know, a, a great thing for everybody. There are a lot of different agendas here. In fact, I think even to this day, although things look good for telehealth reimbursement, you know, there are folks who are still very concerned about overutilization, right? Will this, will this drive inappropriate overutilization or inappropriate utilization? And we do have inappropriate utilization in healthcare today. A lot of folks, a lot of the studies that have been done show that probably 30% of what we do in healthcare really isn't needed. Now you're making certain things even more convenient. Is that going to just exacerbate a problem we already have? Yes. Yeah. And I remember uh, talking to a set of researchers who had done CAT scans of uh, patients. I think it was part of the Framingham Heart Study. It was a subset of that. And the, you know, they were basically, I'm 63, basically my age and older. And they said in 20% of the patients, they found stuff that should have been intervened on. So I've often thought we, you and I, Steve, should start a healthcare company. We just give away free CAT scans. We'll we'll have all kinds of demand. <laughs> well, there there was there was a little there was a blip of that kind of activity in the mid 2000s, like 2005, six, when reimbursement for ambulatory imaging was really really high. There were a bunch of entrepreneurs that, especially out on the West Coast, that were doing these full body scans. Yep. Uh, for folks. <laughs> don't, don't underestimate the potential harm of false positives sure. in that environment, right? That's the thing that I think kills that that kind of idea or not doesn't kill it. It makes it a little trickier. Yeah, uh, I was only kidding. <laughs> by the way, I, I glanced over at the chat uh, area and I just zeroed in on someone raised the question about alignment of incentives, Yes. Uh, which uh, I think is a big deal in healthcare. Right. It sort of gets at my comment earlier about the number one spectator sport. When you have so many different parties with differing interests, right? Pharma wants one thing, the the payers want another thing, the providers care about something else. And even within the providers, the ambulatory care docs care about one thing, the hospital guys want heads and beds. Like it, it just makes for the need to think through carefully with them what's in it for each of the parties, right? Yeah, in terms of the CARES Act, the Cures Act and the CARES Act, you know, the thing I wanted to highlight here was had more to do with the um, interoperability piece. So I mentioned earlier that the government spent probably $40 billion enticing providers, and then it was a carrot and stick, right? It started off as a carrot. We'll pay you X dollars if you achieve this level of computerization. And then it began, if you don't get there by this date, we're going to dock your Medicare reimbursement, you know, one or 2%, and you're going to feel that. That's going to be painful. So it was carrot and stick, a pretty, I think, well-designed way to get the country to move in the right direction in terms of automation support. But the interoperability thing was not dealt with aggressively at the time. The CARES Act, Cures Act, those things have, have, have helped drive some, I think, positive movements on the interoperability and facilitating data flow within healthcare, which is really important to support better alignment of incentives and, and better activities that will support something where everyone can win or most yeah. will. Well, I mean, uh, Francis Scully's been asking, you know, and I think appropriately, 
kind of where's the patient in all this, right? What are the patient focused outcomes and how do you think about cares and data liquidity in terms of that, that set yeah. of issues? Yeah. Well, again, how you measure quality in healthcare is a, is a tricky thing. The good news, again, I think the good news is that there has been an absolute pattern of the folks who tend to define what quality is and how that works within reimbursement. There's been an absolute pattern weighting more heavily over time the opinions or perceptions of consumers. Mm-hmm. And so HCAP scores, CAP scores are all aimed at influencing the way providers deal with patients. The better mm-hmm. their patient satisfaction scores, the more they get paid. I mean, that's pretty true already today, and mm-hmm. it's becoming more and more so. I've heard that NCQA, which controls one of the major ways quality gets measured, HEDIS scores, mm-hmm. uh, the pattern there is absolutely in that direction. More and more weight on patients' perceptions of their experience and quality. In addition, there's been a lot of innovation. Talk about funding, a company called Evidation Health. They're uh, patients like me. There have been a bunch of innovative companies aimed at trying to weave into the medical record, and I put it out in mm-hmm. quotes, patient-reported outcomes, right? So what the doctor thinks at the two visits a year they have with the patient is one thing. What the patient thinks about their level of health and care along the way, right? 99% of a human's life and time is spent outside of the doctor's office or outside of the hospital. You know, what's going on during that time is something we're trying to weave into the care delivery process. That's Mm -hmm. tricky to do. Doctors are overwhelmed with the amount of data they have today. I remember the early days of Fitbit. I think I met with the founder CEO of Fitbit in the early days and lots of data that we all wanted to maybe throw into the electronic medical record. Most doctors don't want that much data unless it's been curated and, you know, organized in a way that makes it reasonably efficient to assess. So, yeah, Yeah, no, it's interesting. I I have an investment in a company called TapCloud that does symptom reporting by individuals and self-compliance about three or four times a week. And it is one of the best predictors of whether or not you need to be seen. Uh, And there's another secondary effect, which is kind of cool, which is that people who know that a doctor has looked at their symptoms are less stressed about, you know, should they be seen? Because a lot of people are coming into an ER or something like that, just to know that somebody's looked at that. But still very hard to to get adoption and integration. So we have CARES Act, and then we have the Cures Act, 21st Century Cures Act. Yeah. This, I mean, this, I think, is going to... Yeah. Off to the right here, ramifications. I always love to sort of, you know, what's the recourse, right? Here here they're saying, look, if you as a health system are found to be blocking the flow of information, you can get fined, I think it was up to a million dollars per instance of information blocking. Now, why would a provider block the release of patient information? Mm -hmm. There's actually a very good reason why they might do that. I used to say the shortest the shortest putt for most hospital-centric health systems to improved financial and maybe even clinical performance, but certainly financial performance, is to figure out how they keep their panel of patients, consumers, in network. I mean, there's been huge consolidation in the healthcare provider marketplace over the last 10 to 15 years. What I mean by that is hospitals, you know, merging with hospitals, but maybe even more impressively, hospitals acquiring physician practices. And those Mm -hmm. integrated delivery networks that are collections of hospitals and physician practices want to coordinate care. And since over 90% of the way they get reimbursed is for what they do, that's fee for service. Uh If they can keep patients in their network, they do better financially. Sure. And, uh, That's not necessarily a bad thing because they could also argue we can coordinate care better if we keep people in. But you shouldn't force patients to do that, right? And you could almost force them if you don't release their data to other providers. Mm -hmm. That's a bad thing. The government said, if if we catch you doing that, you're in big trouble. So I think Mm -hmm. that's helping with data liquidity. All the EMR vendors, Epic, Cerner, Athena Health, have done a lot of work to 
make their data much more available, make it available mm-hmm. in a timely fashion. And one company, uh, full disclosure that I do work with, it's a New Mountain Capital-backed company, Cyox Health, is a major player in this space and is EMR agnostic and is working hard to, again, support these new regulations or help providers comply with these new regulations. Things like, I don't know how many of you in the audience have asked for your medical record or had a a loved one who needed their medical record released. It's a pretty ugly experience uh, at most organizations. And most of these organizations, it's just not a competency they've developed to be able to know what to release, uh, abide by all the regulations, right? You don't just release medical, personal health information willy-nilly. You have to track who'd you release it to and why and did they have the rights to that and all that stuff? Ciox actually helps organizations do that. 3,500 of the 5,500 hospitals out there and is using technology to make it better and better over time, both the consumer experience, but also there are a lot of other folks who want access to those records, the payers, insurance companies, lawyers, social security, disability administration, and so on. So yes. uh, I think well, and you, you have the regulatory right. stuff. You also have the hackers in there, right? Because the value of being able to do false billing and things like that. I remember uh, a number of years ago, I was talking to a cybersecurity expert and they said, forget about stealing your identity for your credit card and stuff. That stuff's only worth a couple cents. If I can get, if I can get access to how to bill you for fake, you know, how to bill your provider, uh, your insurance company for fake provider stuff, that's worth 10, 20, 30, 40 yeah. bucks a record at the time. It's probably been computed down. We talked a lot about this in terms of data liquidity and so forth. Steve, I know that there's a there's a tremendous amount you mentioned before. There's a tremendous amount of capital and money and so forth moving into this. Let me focus a little bit as you think about things like data liquidity and and patient centered healthcare and and even relationships, you know, with the end patient as being we know from common sense and also from from data that you know a lot of times your bedside manner is as important as whatever drug you're you know, giving and, you know, whether or not people feel like they're being cared for by a human being, not just a system. What do you think of the whole entry of private equity into the provider space? Is that a good thing, a bad thing, or a depends thing? You know, if people look at my background and what I'm doing now, they're going to probably believe that I'm biased in my answer. And I maybe I am, but I'll try hard not to be and, and not have it be self-serving. But I've been working with venture and private equity really since the late 80s. And I think that almost, you know, really with rare exception, they folks try to do the right thing in terms of making sure there are, you know, there are benefits for the consumers, benefits for the providers, benefits for obviously for whoever you're selling to. So yeah. I haven't seen any issue with that. I don't I believe that for-profit ventures in healthcare drive innovation and that's been a, a net very positive thing for us in healthcare. I'm pleased as I said early in this session, I'm glad there's more and more money coming in to do that. It's not a great thing for if you're trying to buy companies cuz prices go up, but all in all for society, it's absolutely a good thing. Today, mm-hmm. just as an example, Today, there are, there are a bunch of companies working on trying to improve the consumer experience related to booking appointments. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I called a dermatologist's office a year and a half ago trying to get an appointment, and I asked them, why can't I just do this online? And they literally told me, oh, you'll never, ever be able to do that. <laughs> uh, it's just too complicated. I mean, come on. That just can't continue. So there are companies like ZocDoc and Kairos and and some others that are, are where a lot of private equity, venture and private equity money have gone into both of those companies. And there's been, I think, great progress in sort of breaking down those walls. An intelligent open table for healthcare, an intelligent open table for healthcare has to happen. There's just it's going to happen, right? So, and I think the venture and private equity guys are going to make it happen with all due respect to these wonderful institutions, Mayo Clinic, Mass General Brigham, Hopkins, where I trained, they're not going to figure that out on themselves. We need, we need folks looking across the country to pull that off. Yeah. It just, you know, I know you shouldn't overgeneralize some personal stories, but as we moved out here to Chicago from Boston, you know, we had to reestablish new physician relationships and so forth. And 
I'll tell you the the very worst part was trying to see who's in network on my insurance company, which is an absolute horror show. I mean, the kind of thing where they would give you data was not only the doctor not there, they were dead or moved to another, you know, I mean, you know, not that wasn't that they just weren't taking patients. They weren't in the round. And that was the most current data compared to ZocDoc, which was completely painless. We got lots of good. Anyway, by the way, in the regs, I think it was in the, the, I think it was in the Cures Act. I'm not sure. The quality of data uh, being presented to consumers by payers, yeah. that's part of the reg. Like those payers are scrambling right now to get better and better data. In fact, Kairos acquired a company, HealthSpark, that does provider directory management. Kairos did it on the provider side. Payers were doing it on the payer side, bringing that all together. I mean, why you should have Dr. Jones profile have to be maintained in so many different areas is craziness. So we'll, we're getting better at that. Yes. Hey, I know uh, we're, we're getting toward the end of the hour. I wanted to, this is such a huge area, right? This whole oh, so for service value-based care. So I, I know I know you spent a lot of your career trying to, you know, move oh. toward value-based care, right? Outcomes, not, not inputs. Um, yeah, this is really, really important. You know, I mentioned Signify Health earlier. They're a company that has spearheaded bundled payments and, and automation support for bundled payments. Fee-for-service is you get paid for what you do. And fee-for-value says, I'm going to pay you, you know, a lump sum. It might be, you know, monthly. It might be for a given episode of illness. That's a bundled payment. Capitation is I'm going to pay you to take care of a certain number of lives, you know, but the point is you're shifting the responsibility for thinking through the whole, a holistic view of the patient. When you move towards value-based care, you're thinking about, you know, how am I going to do this in a way that's cost effective, but I'm being kept honest by measurements of quality. And back in the eighties and nineties, when we made a big push to value-based care, I think our suboptimal ability or maybe inability to measure quality mm-hmm. spooked folks because you can in healthcare, you know, make a lot of money by doing the wrong thing. You can lose a lot of money by doing the right thing, right? And what you want to do is you want to build a sustainable business, mm-hmm. right? Just sustainable business that does the right thing. And I think uh, value-based care the companies I mentioned earlier, or Oak Street Health, Alignment Health, Devoted Health, these companies are all payviders. They're trying to be a provider and at the same time, you know, manage value-based reimbursement in a mm-hmm. way that I think is helping us get better and better over time. The other thing this is doing is it's driving convenience. You know, just give you an example. If you're a patient who's undergone a hip surgery, mm-hmm. right? Today, you know, in in a sense, the providers will make more money if you stay, if you're in the hospital for a short period of time and then you move into a skilled nursing facility and then you go home. And that's because they get paid for each of those things, right? Mm-hmm. If we could just let you go home, right, the overall cost of that episode of care does go down, mm-hmm. but the provider doesn't necessarily do do better. So bundled payments was an effort to say, look, providers, I'm going to give you 40 grand for a hip surgery. You got to take care of everything 30 days before the surgery and 90 days after. Manage it proactively. Manage it in a a thoughtful way. Uh, That's just an example of value-based care. And that ends up driving innovation related to how do we create a home environment that can support a patient coming right out and getting great care in their home. Better for the patient, better for the family, better for overall costs, and with just as good, maybe better outcomes clinically. You are shifting more of the financial risk to providers and a little bit less to the payers, the payvider. That's that's the company that's doing both. By the way, United Healthcare is now the largest independent medical group in the country. They're not just an insurance company, Optum Care. I believe employs 30, 35,000 physicians. I mentioned earlier, there are only about 850,000 that practice in the US. The largest health systems like Ascension, Tenet, Mass General Brigham, you know, that tend to be more in the five to 10,000 range. 
So these folks figuring out how you align incentives is driving some innovation in sort of both how providers and payers are organized as well. It's a pretty interesting area and they need great tech to get it right. Steve, do you think there's, what can we learn from, you know, some of the models, whether it be, you know, Canada or the UK or, you know, where you have, you know, national health service, and then in some instances, a layer on top, or, you know, I know these are, these are different. Some of them are very different size markets. So, you know, like you take a look at a country like Switzerland, I mean, I think Switzerland's GDP is the same as the GDP of New York state or something like that. I mean, it's relative, that's certainly not as big as California, you know? So I know it's a different scale problem, Yes. but what do you think we can learn from that? Whether it be, you know, access to care, access to preventative care, inefficiencies of transaction costs among the different players, alignment of incentives, because in a certain sense, these national health services are, as you say, you know, what you call them? Payviders. Payviders. Yeah, payviders. That's right. right. They're all payviders. Yeah, um, and I think I think that's that's part of my answer. Is I think we're lear- we've learned a lot from them. We're learning a lot from them. I think until you can really measure quality, our ability to get there was compromised because people are afraid of you know what some people call the R word rationing. Right in the eighties and nineties, you heard the R word. I mean, Mm -hmm. in the 2000s, you're hearing a little, you heard a few years ago about death panels, right? People not getting what they need. I do think there are cultural issues as well. You know, as you and I have discussed, uh, a lot of what you spend on healthcare in your life as an American is spent, you know, your last year of life and how different countries have navigated that. I'm not an expert in that area. But I'd point folks to the Commonwealth Fund, does some great work looking at healthcare service delivery models in different countries around the world. And mm-hmm. uh, I think we're trying hard. And to your question about private equity and venture, I think the smart ones have looked hard at those things and tried to stand on the shoulders of giants to, to make it relevant here. And the companies I've already mentioned, I think, are, are, are doing a lot of that. I think Medicare Advantage, I, I can't believe we almost ended this session without talking about Medicare Advantage. Mm-hmm. Medicare Advantage is probably the fastest growing and largest example of fee-for-value care delivery in the mm-hmm. U.S. today. About 40% of all Medicare beneficiaries, so that's anyone over 65, there's some others that get in, but keep it simple, are entitled to Medicare, about 40% of them have chosen Medicare Advantage. And so they're in plans that are absolutely looking at fee-for-value dynamics. But more interestingly, about 60% of those aging into Medicare Mm. are choosing Medicare Advantage. So it's growing. Mm. And I think uh, there's a lot of innovation going on around Medicare Advantage. Again, Alignment Health, Mm-hmm. Uh, and Oak Street are two companies that went public in the last year or so. And the reason I point them out is you can read their S1s and get up the curve pretty quickly on a lot of the issues about around value-based care by just reading those companies' S1s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, again, I think both of those organizations have learned from other countries. You know, Alignment Health learned a lot from California. The leadership mm-hmm. team there had done some innovative things back in the 90s related to value-based care. And I'd say the West Coast and maybe Massachusetts, Michigan, a few other states have been more progressive on that front than others. Interesting. You know, one of the questions from our audience is back to this issue of telehealth. And um, as I understand the question, it's basically, hey, with telehealth, you can generate lots of activity that may not solve the problem. And this particular practice is an OBGYN problem. So all of a sudden you've got these inbound requests for telehealth. It really doesn't help the patient at the level that they need. It creates problems for the doctor. So it's kind of like, you know, transactions on top of what you're going to have to do anyway, is the the way I'm reading the question. So how do you think about that, Steve, in terms of, because, you know, I mean, you and I both know the availability of information sometime like chasing mercury, you know, it's like, and, you know, when I was a kid, I, I don't know how my parents let me do this. I actually used to play with mercury. I'd break thermometers and try to go after it. So I, I think I would have been a lot smarter if I hadn't done that. But the, I, um, I can't imagine that. Uh, I can't even imagine what, what you would have been like without the mercury exposure. Listen, 
I trained at Emory for undergrad med school in Hopkins. I did my residency. I was on the faculty there. And one of the things I learned during that time is something that I think most of the world doesn't really know. And I believe it's true is that most diagnoses in healthcare are made from the history. It's not the laying on of hands. It's not the listening to the heart or tapping on the stomach or the checking the reflexes. Don't get me wrong. That stuff's important in certain cases, but it's really excellent history taking. I mean, the best clinicians I've ever gotten exposed to, the best, the most, the best clinicians you read about are the ones who are just awesome at history taking. Mm -hmm. And so I believe while that's a legitimate concern, that we just need to keep iterating and we'll get better and better at how we use these technologies. It was to your point, John, earlier about we're going to probably we're going to strike the right balance between virtual and in-person, brick and mortar and virtual. I think there's a lot that can be done. Well, you're absolutely right. That's a risk. And in fact, a lot of the payers, you know, if they have to pay the same fee to providers for a televisit that they do for an in-person they're absolutely concerned that certain providers and patients will abuse it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are ways to, to keep that in check. Gotcha. We're doing that. Well, my friend, unfortunately, we're out of time. It's great to have a chance to talk to you about this. Any parting thoughts for our folks before I just give an idea of what we're going to be doing next time? Yeah, I've got a big, important thought. And that is back in the late 80s, when I jumped in full time into healthcare tech, I thought that within four or five years, all of healthcare would be automated. And uh, it's far from that. It's certainly not computable to the extent we need it to be computable. We didn't talk about AI much at all. I urge you folks to take a hard look at healthcare and just see all the amazing opportunities there are for improving healthcare delivery, the careful application of good technology. There are just huge opportunities and we need we need people outside of healthcare to come in and help us get it right faster, better, sooner. So uh, pleasure being with all of you. And oh, thanks, thanks for the uh, audience engagement too. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, my friend. That's it for this episode. For more information and advice on how to become a growth innovator in your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Thanks as always for listening. We will see you next time. Thank you.